Remain standing for our gospel lesson from John 19. This is God's gospel, so pay close attention. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man! Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he must die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day, of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Good Friday and for what you accomplished. As we meditate on this heavy passage, may we remember our sin and your goodness to us in our sin, your salvation of us, your rescue of us from the pit of hell, from eternal death, through the death of your Son. May we treasure this gospel in our hearts 
in a, in a new way, in a deeper way than we have before by means of considering and meditating on your inspired words. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I'm getting a little rusty at doing the announcements. Apparently, I forgot to remind everybody that we have uh, a potluck today and that if you're visiting with us, we, we want to welcome you to stay and, and eat lunch with us. And, and we have a, an event in the, in the afternoon as well. At no point in the life of Jesus is his sovereignty more evident, more on display than in his trial before Pilate. We could say his trials before the Jews and the Romans, but in particular before Pilate, and especially in these last few minutes, which we read about today. Think about it. Pilate, who knew that Jesus was innocent, it, it was as clear as the sun at noon in July that Jesus was innocent. And he wanted to release Jesus. He, he, was, he was intent, in fact. I mean, a lot of these things that we've read this week and, and last week, he was intent on finding a way to let Jesus go. Three times. In this passage, today's passage, and last week's passage, three times Pilate pronounced Jesus innocent. Three times Pilate declared, I find no fault in him. So Jesus was tried and found innocent. He was declared not guilty by the authority, three times by the duly appointed Roman ruler, Pilate. Okay, so think about that historical situation. And then... Remember that in spite of Pilate's efforts, in spite of his own personal convictions, in spite of his not guilty verdict, <clears throat> verdict in, in fact, Christ was crucified. If, if you're a historian reading this for the first time and you don't know the ending, you're, you're, you're reading these, these details and you know, you got Pilate and he's obviously not guilty and he's saying, he's, well, he's going to, you know, he's the ruler, he's going to be able to let him go. Well, he can't. In spite of all this, Christ is crucified. Why? How did that happen? It's sort of a mystery in, in one sense when you think about this as John's setting it up. Like, how, how could this happen at this point? And the main answer, we, we could, there's a lot of you know, answers we could give humanly speaking, politically speaking. But the main answer is that's what God wanted to happen. That's God had decreed from all eternity that Pilate would sentence Christ to death. That, that was God's plan. And that's part of what Jesus is saying is you don't have any authority to do anything really except what it, what's been given to you. And, it, and he's not just saying, you know, insofar as God appoints all rulers. He's all, he's, what he's, the deeper theological meaning of that is God has a decree and, and you're, you're a slave to it. And that's your, your God's pawn. All the powers of earth and hell combined couldn't thwart God's plan, this plan. Now, this doesn't release Pilate from responsibility at all. Uh, he, he was to blame. 
Christ does assign more blame to others, the Jews in particular, who, who are God's people, who have the covenant and the promises, and they're the ones who handed him over to Pilate. So they have you know, deeper guilt, if you, if you will. But Pilate very much is to blame. But this helps us to see beyond, when we think about this bigger picture, we, we need to see beyond the immediate circumstances, the immediate religious and political circumstances, to the saving purposes of God in Christ on the cross, through the cross. It helps us to see that in the midst of the most egregious of sins, Jesus is still reigning as king. He is still the reigning king. Christ isn't the underdog in John 18 and 19. God isn't losing control of the situation the closer we get to the cross. God has never been more in control. His sovereignty has never been more on display, more forcefully on display than in the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. Neither mankind mankind nor Satan takes anything away from God at any point, not least here in John 18 and 19. God isn't being stripped of anything. Rather, at the cross, God is giving. He's being gracious. He is giving mankind, he is giving us, his people, what we need. He's giving us a gift. He's in control. He's leading. He's doing. He's giving. He's deciding. Mankind needs a savior. Mankind needs a Passover lamb, a sacrifice for our sins. Mankind needs a blameless man, a holy representative man who can stand before the righteous God and truly stand. Mankind needs a righteous mediator between God and man. Mankind needs a king, a true king, the kind of king who lays down his life for his people. In our passage, God is giving us what we need. He's providing everything that we need, as Peter puts it, for life and godliness or for godly living, starting with our salvation from sin. Jesus took on humanity's fallen flesh. He became the second Adam. Jesus laid down his life for humanity's sin. He became our Passover lamb. He did all of this as our conquering king. He's conquering right now in this story, what we just read. It's heavy. But Jesus is conquering. And one day, because of what he does here and what he will do in in the following verses, one day, all people, every single person ever to be conceived will kneel before Christ and acknowledge that there is no Lord, there is no king except Jesus. As we enter John 19, Pilate is frustrated, he's discouraged, he's befuddled, he's in way over his head, politically and spiritually. And he attempts to release Jesus, but... All of his attempts have failed. At the end of chapter 18, he appealed to the Jewish custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover. That that didn't really work out. It it sort of backfired, actually, and he ended up releasing Barabbas instead. 
So now he decides to take a different approach. Pilate thinks, maybe if I flog him, maybe if I, if I beat him, maybe, maybe mock him a little bit, the wrath of this mob will be satisfied, and then I can let him go. Look at verses 1 to 3. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on, a, on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. These soldiers speak better than they know, as other characters in this story have done. Earlier, we saw that the high priest Caiaphas, uh, or, yeah, Caiaphas, prophesied. He, he spoke better than he knew. He, he prophesied that Jesus would, needs to die as a substitute, essentially. He was right. He didn't understand it from a point of faith, but he prophesied something true, nonetheless, in God's providence. And now the soldiers mockingly dress Jesus up as king and hail him as Jewish royalty, Ironically, they acknowledge that Jesus is the king. They also fulfill prophecy when they mock and strike Jesus. Isaiah 50, verse 6, and the, the future Messiah. These are the words of the future Messiah in, in Isaiah 56. He says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So again, God and his Christ continue to be in complete control of the outcome, the means and the end. They're bringing about the fulfillment of Scripture. They're bringing about the salvation of God's people and they're using these unfaithful Jews and heathens, Roman heathens, to, to do it. The statement, Hail, King of the Jews, echoes the adoration that Roman citizens would give the emperor. Hail, Caesar, that's what they would say. And one commentator put it this way, these soldiers, proud of their theatrical wit, make Jesus a plaything, treating him as if he were a clown king. Now, when I read that comment in my study, my, my, you know, just reading this passage, I felt this way, but when I read that comment, in it, my heart was filled with disdain anew toward these soldiers for treating Jesus with such contempt. And that, that's what we do when we read this passage, just in our sense of injustice. <clears throat> we just can't wait, you know, till, till they get what's coming to them. But then it struck me that sometimes I'm not as different from these blasphemers as I'd like to think. I confess that Jesus is the crucified and risen king. I confess, in fact, that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, but the king of heaven and earth, but sometimes this confession that comes out of my mouth is disconnected from what's going on in my heart, what I actually believe, which is shown by my actions or lack of actions in some cases. I too am capable of taking the name of Jesus in vain by confessing him with my mouth, but despising him and his commandments in my heart. And that's by the way, what it means to break, that's principally what it means to break the third commandment. Downstream applications have to do with you know, words that we use inappropriately. But central to that third commandment 
is taking God's name, bearing his name, saying I am a follower of Jesus, taking his name in baptism, confessing it in vain, without actions, without true faith and faithfulness to go with it. So we need to see the lingering sin in our hearts when we read these stories of sinners in the Bible. Is your confession ever at odds with your heart? Is there ever a gap, a chasm? 1 Peter 3.15 says to sanctify, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Okay, that's where it has to start. If you're gonna, you can't start in your mouth. You know, it has to start in your heart. Do you ever find yourself sanctifying God in your mouth while doing something different in your heart? In verse 4, the scene switches from Pilate's inner court, the praetorium, to the outer court where the mob is. Pilate then went out again, it says, and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Verse 5, Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold, the anthropos, where we get the word anthropology, Behold the man. Can you hear the ridicule, the irony in Pilate's voice here, his statement? Look, the man that you find so dangerous, the man that you find so threatening to your nation. There's a deeper reason that uh, John records Pilate's words here. It's, of course, it is what he said. It's a historical fact. But there's a deeper reason. In our, in our journey through this gospel, starting with the very first verse of John, John has regularly taking, taken us back to which book in the Old Testament? Do you remember the one he takes us back to the most? Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. That's how John opens, which intentionally echoes Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. Genesis 2 tells the story of the first man and his bride. John's gospel presents Jesus as the new bridegroom, the better bridegroom. In Genesis 3, the first Adam leads his bride into sin and death. In John's gospel, the second Adam saves his bride from sin and death. In Genesis 3, the first man commits his disobedience in a garden. In John 18, 19, and 20, the new man is arrested in a garden, crucified in a garden, and resurrected in a garden. So this connection between Genesis and John is critical to understanding the phrase that Pilate uses in verse 5 of John 19. Behold the man. Now, before I show you the the specific connection I'm talking about, let me be clear that Pilate himself was not trying to do biblical theology. He wasn't trying to echo anything in the book of Genesis. This is in in God's providence. Pilate utters the phrase, behold the man. And John records this historical historical event for his own typological purposes. He he uses Pilate's own words to, to make a 
a link between the second Adam, Jesus, and the first Adam. So, the first time we see this phrase in the Bible, behold the man, is in Genesis 3. After Adam had sinned, in Genesis 3.22, God turns to his divine counsel, to the, to the lesser gods that he had recently created, the cherubim and the seraphim. And he says to them, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. <clears throat> Behold the man. Now here in Genesis 3, the title, the man, is spoken by God in the context of Adam's guilty verdict. Which, a guilt that puts all of creation under God's curse. So in Genesis 3, the phrase, behold the man, brings into focus the, the impending death of Adam. It, it announces Adam's separation from God, his alienation from God. Behold, the man begins an announcement that, that drives Adam away from the tree of life, away from the garden, and away from the life-giving presence of God. That's what this behold the man announcement Indicates. Behold, the man announces that Adam now exists in a state of depravity, spiritual death, and he's physically dying too. Look at how the first man alienated himself from God, we could paraphrase. Behold, the man. In John's gospel, however, Jesus undoes all of this, he reverses the curse. He brings life out of death rather than death out of life as Adam, the first Adam did. He who is eternal life enters into the depravity and death created by Adam and his race, us, in order to create something new. The new Adam and his new garden will obey where the first Adam disobeyed. The second Adam will conquer that serpent, the same serpent that destroyed the first Adam. And all of this new life, all of this new creation that the new Adam is ushering in, it all turns, it all turns on this new Adam's death on a cross. The cross is where and how the second Adam becomes the first Adam's savior and king. The cross is where and how he becomes your savior, your king. Behold the man. Like so many other characters in this narrative that God is writing, Pilate speaks once again better than he knows. Look at how the second Adam is reconciling God and man. Verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify, for I find no fault in him. This is the first time the word crucify appears in this gospel. The high priests and their servants, that's what the officials refers to as the the word of servants there. Uh, 
they repeat, crucify, crucify. The word him is absent in the Greek. Crucify, crucify. Crucify is an imperative verb. They're not requesting a crucifixion. They're demanding a crucifixion. They're ordering Pilate around. They're ordering this sovereign to crucify. For the third time, Pilate finds Jesus not guilty. He's faultless. The text, John, points that out. He's the spotless lamb. Pilate keeps telling us so. Pilate affirms once again the sinlessness of Jesus. He can't help but proclaim the truth of the gospel. Then in verse 7, the Jews proclaim the gospel. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he must die. Think about that. Because he made himself the son of God. Pilate had, he had confessed the blamelessness of Jesus three times. And now the Jews proclaim that his death is the fulfillment of Scripture, the fulfillment of the law that God gave. They can't help but confess the truth. And I hope you're seeing how all of this points to that last day that Paul talks about in Philippians 2 where every knee will bow, every tongue confess. But the Jews also scared Pilate uh, when, they, when they finally made their, really their first accusation against Jesus. Recall, Pilate had been asking them, you know, what, what'd he do? What, what's, what's he guilty of? And they wouldn't tell him, but now at the end of verse 7, they're finally forced to charge him with his crime. What is it? He made himself the son of God. Verse 8, therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. He was very afraid, could be another translation. The narrative is about to move back inside the praetorium, but first we go inside of Pilate. John says that Pilate was frightened by that last thing the Jews told him. He made himself the son of God. Pilate wasn't just afraid. The text makes a point to say he was very, he was particularly afraid. What if this is true? What they're saying, you know, his claim. I mean, you know, at this point, he's, he's interacted with Jesus enough to know a little bit about his character. Um, and so if this is what he's saying about himself, what if it's true? What if this mysterious Jewish man in my court really is some kind of divinity, some kind of God? Now, as a polytheistic pagan, Pilate was, would have been more open to divine sonship of some kind than, than the monotheistic Jews were. And so the irony thickens once again. This Roman outsider is more open to believing that Jesus is the Son of God, God's Son, than his own people are, than the Jewish people are. Pilate's fear drives him to ask Jesus another question in verse 9. And Pilate went again into the praetorium, 
and said to the Jews, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So that, that fear, because of what they said, drove him right back into the inner court to, to ask Jesus, who, who are you? Where do you come from? He wants to know, are, are you a man or a God? Is what they're saying true? What's your, what's your origin? But Jesus remains silent. Surely because Pilate isn't even... He, he, he can't even begin to understand the truth. He has no faith. That takes faith that, to understand the truth. And ultimately, Pilate is as rank an unbeliever as, as are the, the Jews demanding Christ's crucifixion. It becomes clear in the following verses, clearer, it becomes clearer in the following verses that there's only one free man in this story. Only one person exercises liberty in this story. The liberty to do exactly what he wants when he wants to do it. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? Really? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless you had been, it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Jesus speaks what he wants. He speaks when he wants. He remains silent when he wants. He gets arrested when and where he wants. And he will die precisely when he wants and how he wants. He'll lay down his life. No one will take it from him. Pilate, on the other hand, the other king, the other ruler in this story, the supposed ruler, he can't even release this man. He can't even release Jesus. Think of it. The Roman sovereign who possesses delegated power and authority from Caesar himself can't even let an innocent man go free in his own domain. He claims to have the power to release Jesus. You know, Hey, don't you know who you're talking to? I, I can release you. Or I can crucify you. But practically, he's powerless. Pilate is an enslaved man. In one sense, he's enslaved to the will of the Jews crying, Crucify! Crucify! But in a deeper sense, Pilate is enslaved to the will of God. The decretal will of God. Who decreed from eternity that Jesus would be crucified on that very Friday. When the Jews threatened to create a rift between Pilate and Caesar, that, that got Pilate's attention. You know, that's his boss. And Caesar wasn't known for being reasonable and gentle, compassionate, slow to anger. <clears throat> that, that's when Pilate began to fold up. Starting in verse 13, let's read to the end of the passage. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha, 
Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. And then the next thing Pilate does, Then Pilate delivered him to them to be crucified. In verse 13, there, there's a fair amount of uncertainty about who is sitting on that judgment seat. Is it Pilate or Jesus? The grammar can go either way. On one reading, the way most translations sort of do it, Pilate himself sits down in the judgment seat. It's his after all. And this is arguably the reading that makes the most sense historically. That's what we would expect, right? It's his seat. He's, he's the judge. But on another reading, Pilate places, and by the way, it's the reading of the same words, not different manuscripts. It's just the same words can be taken two different ways. So on another reading, Pilate places Jesus in the judgment seat. And this is arguably the reading that makes the most sense grammatically, linguistically. It's just hard to figure out how that would work. Historically, maybe Jesus, maybe maybe Pilate is mocking Jesus. You know, hey, you're you're the king, you're the judge, sit in the judgment seat. Interestingly, the the word for judgment seat here is the same word Paul uses to refer to the judgment seat of Christ that everyone will stand before on the last day. Second Corinthians five ten, Paul says, "We must all appear before the judgment seat." Of Christ, same exact word, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, who is sitting on this judgment seat in verse 13? Is it Pilate or is it Jesus? John, good answer. John, he could have used different language to clarify it for us historically if he wanted. And this leads me to believe that the ambiguity is intentional. And the point is this, even if Pilate is the one sitting on the, on the seat here, verse 13 points beyond Pilate to the true judge, the true king. So even during his trial before Pilate, King Jesus is reigning over all things from his cosmic throne. He's, he's orchestrating history. He's turning men's hearts. He's making sure Humanity puts him on a cross so that he becomes a sacrificial lamb for his people. Verse 14 says that all of this took place on Friday. Friday is the day before the weekly Sabbath, which is Saturday. And it was the day that the Jews prepared for the Sabbath. And for this reason, Friday was called Preparation Day. This was the preparation day that happened, that came around during Passover. So Passover began on Thursday. It began on Thursday. It didn't begin on Thursday every year. It began on Thursday that year, on April 6th, AD 30. The Passover lambs then, and some of this is debatable, but I'm convinced that the Passover lambs would have been slaughtered on Thursday afternoon, the first day of Passover, and the Jews would have eaten the Passover meal on Thursday night. That's, that's in fact, what we see Jesus and his apostles doing. 
Jesus and his apostles had, a, had participated in the same Passover meal that all the Jews were eating the night before, which turned out to also be the, the, last, Lord's, the last Passover, but the first Lord's Supper that Thursday night, the previous night. But now it's Friday, the next day. It's preparation day, which was the second day of Passover that year. So Jesus was crucified on April 7th, Friday, April 7th, A.D. 30. Today's passage serves somewhat as a prologue to the, to the account of Christ's crucifixion and burial. And we continue to see in John 19, as we saw in John 18, that even while he's being bound, beaten, bloodied, and berated, King Jesus never loses control of anything. He never loses his sovereign grip on creation. And we can just stop and take joy in that and be thankful for that. He's never not in complete, absolute control of every circumstance in his life, in your life, in all of history, in every nation, in every family. He is the sovereign king all the time. Jesus is on a mission. We see that. He, 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 he doesn't get sidetracked. He doesn't get distracted from his mission. He came to do his father's will. He won't be deterred from dying for his people. And this passage reveals the kind of king Jesus is. We can say a lot of things about what it does. It, it shows us uh, what it looks like to be focused on God's will and not on your own. But this story demonstrates what Jesus has recently said about his kingdom. It demonstrates that his kingdom is not of this world. His heart and his mind are not rooted in earthly things, but in heavenly things. If Jesus doesn't appear to be the reigning king in this story, it's because our notions of kingship are too worldly and not biblical enough. If, if I were writing history, I'd have a hard time putting Jesus through all this injustice and abuse. I'd have a hard time writing a lot of the things that God has written in my life. I'd be disinclined to let these God-haters afflict God's Son. In other words, if I were writing history, I might be tempted to skip over the gospel. But God, the real author of history, is committed to his gospel, to his saving mission. He's committed to the gospel because he's committed to saving his people Ed Klink puts it this way, quote, Could there be a more vile moment in the world's treatment of its true king? Yet the reader is keenly aware that as much as the soldiers did everything they could to demean the royal status of Jesus, everything they did declared to perfection the, ki- the kind of king he truly is. It is in the midst of the parody and cruelty of this scene 
that the reader comes to understand the deep message of the gospel. God's love of the world and the life that he offers is expressed specifically through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' kingship. And a crown of thorns is the perfect adornment for the king who is also the suffering servant. For as the prophet Isaiah explained long ago, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. The true king brings peace without a sword and, and no fighting is needed to guarantee his eternal reign. For his power was expressed through weakness and the humility of his suffering became his victory. I'm going to read those two sentences again. No fighting is needed to guarantee his eternal reign. For his power was expressed through weakness and the humility of his suffering became his victory. The very actions that were intended to shame him were what scripture would later explain to be the source of his exaltation by the Father. End quote. One day when Christ returns, when he comes back to earth, these these soldiers who mockingly paid homage to Jesus will kneel before Jesus and acknowledge that he is truly the Lord and the King. Some will do it with faith in their hearts. Some will do it without faith, but all will do it. Until then, all of us who bear the name of Jesus, all of, all of us who have had his name put on us in baptism, the way these two little ones received his name today, all of us who already are worshipers of, of God and his Christ, and acknowledge him as Lord and King, we are called to take up our cross and follow him. And that means three things in closing. It means that we, like Jesus, are to express power through weakness. Number two, it means that we, like Jesus, are to find victory in the humility of suffering. And number three, it means we, like Jesus, must allow ourselves to receive the world's shame at times so that in due time we might receive the Father's exaltation. Let me read those, let me say those three things again. It means that we, like Jesus, are to express power through weakness. Number two, it means that we, like Jesus, are to find victory in the humility of suffering. And number three, it means that we, like Jesus, must allow ourselves to receive, at times, the world's shame so that in due time we might receive the Father's exaltation. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Oh God, we exult in the glory of your gospel. We praise you for being a God who did not 
compromise your justice in order to save us, but took on your justice, bore your justice, and all of the wrath that we deserved because of your justice so that we could be saved. As we meditate on these truths this week and in the coming weeks, truly help us to believe in Jesus, to believe in the cross. And then help us to go out from here and take up our crosses and follow Jesus with the same kind of humility, the same kind of emptying ourselves, with the same kind of grace and graciousness and loving kindness and patience toward others that we've been shown by you that you have shown us in Christ. We need your help to do this, but we want to do it. Give us the power, the strength, the will to believe your word and to do it this week and in the coming weeks. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.